I was hoping that it would occur. Our Father in heaven, we do come with thanksgiving in our hearts that you made us and that you love the righteous and you imputed Christ's righteousness to us and you took away our sins. We come to your word tonight to praise you. Lord, to go forth with power and conviction, encourage the believers, challenge the unbelievers, enable me to preach the word correctly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just a little bit of a confession here. I was had prepared for a couple weeks, and then this week as I was reviewing some things, I came across some other things that were helpful to me, and I just want to give credence to these guys. If anything good comes out of it, it's for them. Uh, Christopher Ash and Athanasius uh, have been given a lot of insight into this passage for me. Most scholars believe that these psalms were written let me start back up. There are five psalms here at the end of the Psalter. 40, 146, 47, 48, 49, 50. They're all praise psalms. They all begin with praise the Lord and end each chapter with praise the Lord. These are the psalms of praise that we have in our Bibles today. Most people believe that these were written after the exile. Let me remind you a little bit what was taking place during that time. These psalms were of praise were finalized after the exile when a time when there was no king, no land that was properly their own, a pathetic second temple that, that was not nearly as good as the first one. There was corruption of the priests going on. Precious little faith and godliness was evident in their lives. Everything was pretty much rubbish during this time. So all these calls of praise call for a praise yet to be given. They were living in times when they really didn't have any much to be praising for, but yet they, they are praising the Lord here. They said to Israel, praise God. Don't just tell God how great He is, but tell the world how great He is and back it up with lives that are consistent with that. That's what these Psalms were doing. They were calling the people to praise God and to live a life that was worthy of that praise. But sadly, many of them did not do that. Their praise was more sporadic and it was decreasing as the Old Testament comes to a close. Let me share with you a, a, a few thoughts from Athanasius. You may not know him. He was an early church father. He lived from 298 to about 373 A.D. And he was a wise church father, a very godly man. He had a sick friend named Marcellus who asked him, how should one read the Psalms? How should I go about reading the Psalms? So he wrote him a letter, a 12-page letter on how to read the Psalms. In my word processor, it said it was 9,179 words. Not much good for Twitter. But let me just read you some of his thoughts on how to read the Psalms here. He says, This is the further kindness of the, of the Savior that having become man for our sake, he not only offered his own body to death on our behalf, that he might redeem all from death, but also the desire to display to us his own heavenly and perfect way of living. He expressed this in his very self. He goes on to say, It was as knowing how easily the devil might deceive us that he gave us for our peace of our mind, the pledge of his own victory that he had won on our behalf 
But he did not stop there. He went further still and his own self performed the things that he enjoined us to do. He fulfilled these psalms. Every man therefore may both hear him speaking and at the same time see his behavior, the pattern for his own, even as he himself has bidden, saying, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Think about that. As we read the Psalms, we can both hear and see Christ's example for us to follow. Our purpose tonight, our goal is tonight is to see how this psalm speaks and models Christ for us that we will be an encouragement to us in praising Him. We want to see His encouragement to praise Him. Basically, I have three points I want to go over with you tonight. The first one is the call to praise in verses 1 and 2. Then we have this caution of praise in verses 3 and 4. And then we have the Calls of praise in verses 5 to 10. Three points, the call to praise, the caution in praise, and the calls of our praise. Let's begin with the call to praise. This psalm begins with the first two verses with the decision to praise. There's the decision that's been made to praise in these first two verses. He says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Praise is important, isn't it? Praise for us is important. There's two reasons that I can give you, at least for why we should praise. One is a theological reason. God is immeasurably great, and therefore to know Him is to praise Him. And therefore, if He is not praised, then He is not known. You may ask yourself, do I praise God? Maybe you're a person here who doesn't do that. But if you don't do that, you, you do not know Him. Secondly, we have a spiritual reason, which is if praise does not characterize us and we're joy, we don't have any joy in us, then we're going to be in a place of great danger. We'll be in a place of great danger because we'll just keep drifting away. If we have no spring in our spiritual life, it doesn't bode well for us. We will be vulnerable to those voices that will tell us that their joy can be found someplace else. Someplace else in the world is what it will cause us to drift towards. You always drift away from the Lord. You never drift to Him. You always drift away. How then does praise happen? We already read verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Really, the word there is the word hallelujah. It's hallelujah is the word that's translated in praise the Lord. And the first one there is in the second person plural. That means that he's calling all of Israel to praise and all true believers to praise the Lord. The second praise of the Lord is in the singer when he finishes, Oh my soul. He's talking to himself. He says, Praise the Lord, oh my soul. He's talking, referring to himself there. And then we see a decision to praise as we hear these words, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Let those words sink in for just a moment. Feel the seriousness of that I will. With every good intention that we might have, 
that's not a realistic promise that we can make. We still have our sinful nature. There'll be days we don't feel like praising. There may be weeks that we don't feel like praising. There may be months. Some of it could go longer. You could be in a state of depression and go on for a while and not do that. So, but how and you can I make a pledge like this? I want you to come with me for a little bit. Imagine we're going to the synagogue, a young man, probably in the early 20 ADs. By the way, AD doesn't stand for after death. It means the year of our Lord, so it's the year that he was born. So maybe he was in the early 20s. The young man is there and he's in the synagogue. He's in deep thought. And he's there in the synagogue on the Sabbath with his mother. Perhaps his father is dead by now. We don't know. And his brothers and sisters are there also. And he's had a sense that God was calling him to a costly mission that's going to involve suffering. In a sense, every Sabbath for this young man is a decision time. And so when the cantor, the guy that leads the calling after the Psalms to sing, at the front of the synagogue says, Praise the Lord. And he gives that exhortation. The exhortation made for an answer and determination, and determination in the heart of this young man. And he says, Yes, I will. Yes, I will. And not only will I tell my father how great he is, I will make him known to the world. I who have my in my divine nature dwelt in his bosom, close to his heart from all eternity. I will make him known, he says, to the whole world. At the end of his earthly life, he can say, My Father, I have glorified you. It is though the cantor in the synagogue moved to one side of the Psalms and, the, uh, and this young man takes the lead in singing the, the, the Psalms there. And this young man says to himself, I'm finally going to take the lead. All the calls of Israel for praise will be fulfilled in the praise of this young man to his father. Jesus Christ fulfilled all the whole law and he also fulfilled all the praises of the Psalms and all the other books where praise occurs. He will fulfill that. And that's really important for us to understand. Because at the heart of a disciple is because the heart of a disciple is turned to praise not by exaltation, not by being beaten over the head and told to praise, but by the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus of Nazareth leads to praise. Jesus of Nazareth is the one man in human history who could say, yes, I will, in verse 2, I will praise the Lord as long as I live, and then done so with every fiber of his being. If you and I say in verse 2 in some kind of a cocky, confident way, I'm going to praise God as long as I live. Oh, yes, I am. Well, we're going to be like Peter before the cross. Oh, yeah, I'll do anything for you, Lord. I'll die for you. No, you won't. Nor will I. Only Jesus can say that and fulfill that. Think about a sporting event. And someone gets a wave going. You know, people stand up and cheer for the team and it goes all the way around and comes back around to, to stay in there. And you can see, you've seen those waves, soccer games, football games and stuff. You have the option of not joining in and that wave comes your way. You can decide to join in or not join in it. 
And it goes all the way around the stadium. So why am I telling you that? It's kind of like a little illustration. When if I'm sitting on the other side of the stadium and the wave comes close to me, I didn't have to start that wave, did I? I don't even have to sustain it. I simply have to decide on whether when the time comes, if I'm going to join in on that wave. It, it is similar to that like the praise to God. The Lord Jesus Christ has started that praise. He leads the people of God in the praise of God. You know, I don't need to be exhorted in the same way. When the Psalms say praise the Lord, there are not a challenge for us to take up the microphone. No, there are Christ's invitations for us to come join the choir. To come join this choir that's going to sing His praises to the whole world. And that's a very different thing because that is part of the gospel. We're doing it because Christ is leading us and instructing us and teaching us how to do that. I didn't have to initiate or sustain the praise of God. The Lord Jesus has done that and is doing that even tonight as we sing praises to Him. You and I are invited to join in in this praise. So as we look at this psalm, we need to ask, why should we praise God? But before we consider that, we're given a caution first. Look at verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes and the son of man whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, I'm sure you know as well as I do that when the Bible speaks of princes, it's not speaking about Prince Harry or Prince William over in England. He speaks, you know as well as I do, it means don't put your trust in influential people. People that are like rich people, powerful people, talented people, people who can make things happen. The kind of people that you might be tempted to put your trust in. And that's a real challenge for the individual disciple, isn't it? Not to put your trust in princes. You walk out of a medical consultation and you've been told that you or someone close to you have a life-threatening illness. What do you do? You try to find the best treatment, the best specialist? Well, of course you do. But you think to yourself, that's where I'm going to find help and hope. Or maybe you have pressure at work and work is squeezing the life out of you. I've been there. I know what that's like. You're damaging your health. And you say to yourself, if only I could get a better job or a more considerate boss, then I could find hope and help. Or someone says, oh, I'd love to be married. The long nights, the lonely weekends, I wished only if, if I had a husband or a wife, then I could find some help or hope. Or someone is struggling with an addictive behavior and is destroying them. And they say, only if I could find that clinic that therapy, that I could find hope and help. Or maybe you're a parent of an anxious child. If only my child could get into that friendship group, that school, that neighborhood, then we could find hope and help. Don't put your trust in princes. And the reasoning for this is very, very simple. They are a dangerous attraction, but the reason is very simple. In verse 3b and verse 4, they die. 
and the Son of Man, a human being, in whom there is no salvation in a human being, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. He's an earthling. It's a play on words. Don't trust an earthling because he returns to the earth. And on that very day that he does, his plans perish. And it's not that he just dies. It's that every sickness is an anticipation of death. Every weakness is an anticipation of death. Every forgetfulness is an anticipation of death. And as elders and pastors, we want to say to you, trust us when we say don't trust in princes. That's what a leader should tell his people. We should tell you not to put your trust in princes. Trust me and don't put your trust in me either. Because we or I may try to help you and we may not be able to. Or we may forget to help you. Or we may prove to be unfaithful. God forbid. We may prove to be treacherous and not help you at all. It is the same with parents. The same with husbands and wives. The same with managers in the workplace. It is the same with leaders. Every human agent is a human. Every human agent is on the way to death. It is not just that you trust them till they die. It is that every day they're on their way to death. We all are. So don't put your trust in them. I mean, put your trust in a good pastor and elder. And I suppose the point is that when God helps us, He is a God of means. And generally speaking, He helps through human agency, doesn't He? I thank God for the good princes in my life that you that He used to help me grow spiritually. Thank God for Jack Arnold. Thank John. Uh, thank God for John Carroll, John and Betty's dad, Tim Martin, and others who have helped me to grow spiritually. I thank God for them, and I'm very grateful for them. But it's the key thing not to put our trust in them. I made that mistake once. I put my trust in a prince that I thought was going to teach me how to live the Christian life. I was a young person, 14 to 15. Had a youth leader that came into our church. And when I started going there, he pulled me aside and taught me all kinds of things about Christ. And I looked up to him. He could do no wrong in my sight. And I drifted into the desire of seeking to please him. In the early 20s, I found out he really wasn't what he said he was. He was a wife abuser, unfaithful to his wife, emotionally and spiritually abused his children, spiritually abused me, affected me to, he's like a Pharisee approach to me. I was really disappointed in him. And as I look back, I was disappointed myself. Do not put your trust in princes. They can't help you. And so, the Lord Jesus in his childhood and early adulthood, he learned that he could not trust people. His mother and his brothers didn't believe him at the start. One of his closest friends betrayed him. Another close friend denied him. In John chapter 2, he wouldn't entrust himself to people. John 2.24 says, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He wouldn't trust in people because he knew ultimately that they would let him down. He's our model to follow in that God. And that gives us, that sets us up now as we come to the blessing in the rest of this song. The cause of praise is our third point in verses five to ten. 
I want you to note here that this is a beatitude. It says, blessed. Remember in chapter, Matthew chapter 5, the beatitudes, how they all started. Blessed is the one who, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord. There are 26 beatitudes in the book of Psalms. This is the last one recorded in the book of Psalms. But it's an echo from Matthew chapter 5. If I'm disillusioned by putting my trust in a human being, and that disillusion is not replaced by trusting God, I'll be like the man whose house is swept clean of one demon, and then a whole lot more come in. I've been disillusioned, be let down in one relationship, and I'll look for another one. And I'll keep on looking for our human relationships. I'll keep on propagating that. I'll be delusion, disillusioned by one pastor and I'll keep trying to find another pastor. I'll just be church hopping, looking for that pastor that I think will do what I think they need to do for me. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose every human beings, who is every human beings that are not, they are not there. It's in the God of Jacob. Every human being cannot be what the God of Jacob is. And he is the subject of all these verbs in verses 6 to 9. I think there are 11 of them. He says, he made heaven and earth. Listen to the verbs. He's the subject matter of all of these verbs here. He made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it. He keeps faith. He executes judgment, justice. He gives food. He sets the prisoners free. He opens the, the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down and so on and so on. And there are three themes here that he has. Verse 6, he made heaven and earth. First one is creation. He made heaven and earth. And then he also said he made sea and all that goes in it. We understand heaven and earth. But the sea is primarily used to say that that's where evil resides. God calls it a creature. At times, he calls us he a creature. Although he is not the author of evil, he is sovereign and is the creator of the universe. And evil is under his sway and over his under his dominion. All of it, he keeps faith because he's the God that's faithful, and he will keep his faith in what he's created. This is the, from the Genesis nine thing about the ordinance and keeps the covenant with creation. He is trustworthy, but mostly this is the gospel that we're seeing here. The gospel being unfolded. Look at the recipients of verses 7, 8, and 9. Look for the one that is the odd one out that's different than all the rest of them. And if you're not a believer here tonight, I would encourage you to look at these descriptions and see if that may be one of you. Maybe you might be the homeless. It says, He executes justice for the oppressed. That's the first. He gives food to the hungry. That's the second. He sets the prisoners free. That's the third. He opens the lives of the blind. That's the fourth. He lifts up those who are bowed down. That's the fifth. He loves the righteous. That's the sixth. He watches over the sojourners. That's the seventh. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. And that's the eighth. We'll come back to the rest of verse 9 in a few minutes. Who is the odd one out thus far? You've got the oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, the bow down, the sojourners, the widows, the fathers, and you've got the righteous. You've got the righteous. 
And the righteous in the psalm means it's those who are living by faith. It means those who have trusted in God. And God is the God of the gospel. And if you and I are righteous by faith in Christ, then we are the oppressed. We are the hungry. We are the blind. We are the bowed down. And so on and so on. And we are released by the power of the gospel from those things. So these categories are not different categories. There are different ways of describing the same people. Short, light-skinned, all those adjectives that we might use. These are the ways of describing the same people. They're ways of describing the wicked in the end. There are the ways of describing the righteous who are oppressed by the world. Verse 7, the oppressed of a hostile world. I think of Christians who are being oppressed in China and North Korea. And the God of the gospel will execute justice for them. He will do that. If we are righteous, we will also hunger. We will have desires and longings, and they will be shaped into longings and desires for righteousness. And He will fill those longings and give us our spiritual food to help us accomplish that. Prisoners, we know what it is to enslave and power sin, don't we? And He promises that He will set us free. Bow down. By grief or the burden of the troubled conscience, He will lift that burden from us. He loves the righteous. He loves those who trust in Him. He watches over them who don't belong in this world such as we do. The fathers. We were fathers indeed. Now we have a heavenly Father. And when Jesus of Nazareth hear these words as a young man in the synagogue, in his heart there is a resolution that he will make them his own. And not only will he trust his Father as the God who does all these things, but in his own life and ministry, he will model them to us. He will model this to us. He will feed the hungry. He will open the, the eyes of the blind. We will be able to see Him. We will be able to see His Word. He will lift up those who are bowed down by grief. One of the things that I love about the Psalms of Praise at the end of the Psalter is that they are finalized, as we said earlier, after the exile. At a time when things weren't going so well, were they? As we mentioned earlier. There were praises before there was evidence of that praise. But now we have the evidence of that praise. And we know that Christ will continue to lead us in praise. And then we, as we have these tremendous songs of praise, God of the gospel, we will be able to do that to the God of the gospel. And that has to make sense that praise is not an overflow of our experience, but rather it is the expression of our faith. Praise is expression of our faith. And therefore, it is possible to sing a song of praise. And indeed, it is good to sing a song of praise on the bad days. It is good to sing a song of praise when things are really hard and difficult for us. When things aren't going really good for us. When there's not much evidence of repentance and faith in Godness, it's a good time to be singing a song of praise. When we're struggling with all things that happen to us in life, that's the time to sing a song of praise to the God of the gospel because praise is the overflow of our faith to Him.
Isn't that a wonderful thought? I want you to give an example of Christ praying for us, singing the Psalms. Remember on the night of his, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he was betrayed by Judas. Peter said, we'll deny him. All of this, Christ knew what was going to take place. Disciples went and prayed with him. Uh, he'd be praying the most difficult prayer of his life in a little, in a few, in a few hours. He was arrested. He's interrogated. He was spit on, whipped. He was mocked. He went to Calvary. He suffered the wrath of God. God turned his back on him, knowing all the suffering that he would go through. What did he do at the end of the institution of the Lord's Supper? He led him in a hymn. He led him in a hymn. They sang a hymn. He was anticipating God getting glory from all that and God would sustain him. And then we come to, there's this thing in the telling it that we have here in verse 9. The way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And in the context of this psalm, I think the wicked means the one who thinks he is a prince or one who puts his trust in princes. If you're here tonight and you do not praise the Lord Jesus Christ, this will be your end when you die. The end of verse 9 is very sobering, isn't it? The way of the wicked he brings to ruin. We have seen that Christ fulfills all the I wills in this passage. But he has said the other I wills in other passages, and he will keep those as well. These are his pledges to you and to me. He says, if you do not know me, him, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A promise he will keep. It's the pledge that he will do. John 6.40 For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on that last day. All those people that came to him for rest and passed on, he will raise him up on that last day. His I wills are a pledge that he will do it. And he never does not fulfill his word. If you put your trust in Him, He will save you. For Jesus is worthy. And no other man can save you. We've already seen that. You can't be saved by men, by earthlings. He is the one that is truly worthy for you to call home. If you think other princes will help you, you're sadly mistaken. And unlike human princes in verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. So believer, how is your praise life? Do you allow Christ to lead you in praising God? Do you ask Him to instruct you how to praise God more fully? He does it. He implores you to join this great choir. Again, praise the Lord. And at the end of the psalm here, it says, praise the Lord. It's our invitation to praise Him and let our lives reflect what we're praising, that we are being conformed to His image. He implores us to join this choir of praise the Lord. We're going to close and then we're going to stand and sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues. Let us pray. Oh God, You are the great God of praise. We thank You for giving us Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and all the praises of the Psalms are fulfilled in Him. 
And we can come joyfully to praise Your name. May we do so this week and may we walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who are not here, would You convince them of their need for Jesus Christ tonight. In His name we pray. Amen.